thanks to modern science. A guy was brought in last Thursday, and Toronto Police Service held a press conference yesterday to reveal the name of the guy. But we're still learning more and more about who he is, where he's been for the last 40 years. Um, here's Chief James Raymer making the announcement yesterday. These are two cases that have gone cold from 1983, and now there is a guy sitting in a cell waking up this morning awaiting trial. Last Thursday, November 24th, this individual was arrested and taken into custody in Moosonee, Ontario, and brought back to Toronto on Friday, November 25th. Joseph George Sutherland, 61 years of age, of Moosonee, has been charged under the 1983 Criminal Code with two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Aaron Gilmore and Susan Tice. An interesting aspect there that I'm just noticing in that clip is he says under the 1983 Code. I wonder how different that is going to be. Um, but here to talk about this from the perspective of a homicide detective is our very own Mark Mendelson, News Talk 1010 crime specialist. Good morning, sir. Welcome back. Thanks, John. Good to speak with you. Okay, what do we know about this guy, Joseph George Sutherland? Well, we don't know a lot about him, and I, I, I guess I should explain to our listeners there's a reason why the police are not giving out a lot of information. When he was arrested, within probably 24 hours of being returned to Toronto, he would have appeared before a justice, a justice of the peace, or maybe even a provincial judge, because by law, you have to, you have to appear in court. And when that happens, defense lawyers, and it doesn't matter whether it's going to be his permanent attorney or not, duty counsel, one of the first things they're going to do is ask for what's called a ban on publication. In other words, the media cannot uh, report what is taking place inside the courtroom from this point on. And that will carry on right through till the end of the preliminary inquiry, whatever that is. And that part of that is, of course, to you know protect the, the justice system and the integrity of the justice system and not to taint any, any potential jurors, things of that nature. So this is not sort of, you know, cops hiding the ball. This is the law. And this is this is as common as anything is in, in criminal uh, practice, in, in, certainly in Ontario. And notable in all of this, in almost 40 years, uh, this guy was never even a, a, a person of interest in this case. He was a complete ghost. You're absolutely right. You know, there, there's an old adage. And I remember a wise old homicide detective told me like on day three, when I went in, in there in 1991, a little saying, and it was, if you get stuck, if you have nowhere to go, the killer is always in the box because our, our files were all contained in bankers boxes. It could be two, it could be 22. But he always said, the killer is always in the box. And Detective Sergeant Smith yesterday was clear. And, you know, 40 years after, after all this goes through, he says the same thing. The killer was not in the box. He was never a suspect. He was never a person of interest. He was never interviewed. He was never on their radar. And save and except for this wonderful, uh, you know, advancement in DNA technology, they never would have found him. But what's happened now, John, is they're moving on. They're going to they're gonna plot out exactly where he's been. Uh, over the last almost 40 years, uh, you know, apparently it's confined to the province of Ontario. They will be checking with every police service in the province that he's ever had his fingers on and probably every small town in between City A and City B. And they'll start, uh, you know, comparing the information that they have with timelines that they have. And, it, 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 and Smith was very clear. It, it sounds like Sutherland does not have a criminal record, and it, we can draw an inference from that, is that his fingerprints are not in the system, at least up until the time of this arrest. So there may be lots of unsolved crimes in this province that may not ne necessarily be 
uh, a murder or, or, or a sexual assault. But there might be other crimes where his prints were found, but because he didn't have a record, they were never on file. And now they're going to be able to com- make those comparisons as well. So there's lots of sort of behind the scenes investigations that are going to be taking place. Um, you know, 40 years ago, there was no cell phone technology. There were no cell sites. There were no smartphones. There were no ATMs. So it's a little more difficult to sort of track back his, his movements. But they're going to do it as best they can just to make sure, in this case, that he didn't commit any other serious crimes in any of the places that he's been sort of inhabiting over the last four decades. Okay, so based on your own experience as a homicide detective, it seems to me anyway, but I'm just looking at this from the outside as a guy who talks on the radio for a living, uh, but it seems inconceivable that a guy rapes and murders two women within a matter of months and then never does anything else again. Yes, and that's a very fair question. And, you know, I would suggest that there's there's simply not enough sort of offender data on, on individuals like this as to why they why they stop abruptly or, or, or why they continue on. What we do know is that for the time period that he was in Toronto, uh, these two homicides took place within kilometers of each other. Uh, I think it was about three or four kilometers. And that's consistent because these guys tend to stay in what we like to call their comfort zone. So this is a neighborhood or an area where they know the roads, they know the back alleys, they know the stairwells in case they have to make these quick escapes they actually feel more comfortable in that area. So there's a good good possibility he was living right around where these offenses took place. So they're going to be looking at that, and they're going to be trying to see if he expanded any further. But, you know, he was young. He was like, I think, about 20 or 21 when these, uh, when these offenses took place. There may have been drug addictions at that time. There may have been alcohol addictions at that time. Maybe he got better after, uh, you know, a time period of committing these offenses and completely stopped and didn't do it again. Maybe just figured, look, I pushed my luck and I haven't been caught. I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit this game right now. That's that's entirely possible. But we also may find out later on that uh, he speaks to the investigators at some point, if he hasn't already, and maybe start explaining some of this backstory um, and maybe confessing to other things. We just don't know. But, there, you know, there's just not enough good scientific data to sort of hammer down as to, you know, why this guy started and why he may have stopped abruptly. You know, you, you can't control human nature. No science book can. Mark, thanks for this. Have a super morning, John.